I'm Jonathan Mosen. This is Mosen at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. Today, new natural voices for narrator in Windows 11. Uber has major accessibility issues. Apple has new hardware coming out. And Harchin Consultancy is ready to release Lisi 7. Mosen at Large Podcast. As always, thank you so much for taking time out for the podcast. If this is your first time listening, a warm welcome to you. I did want to start by acknowledging with a lot of sadness the death of Zane Nadella, who is the son of Microsoft's chief executive, Satya Nadella. Zane was 26. He had cerebral palsy and he died last Monday. I know that human beings are incredibly resilient creatures Terrible things happen to you, and somehow you find strength that you didn't know that you had. And I wish that for Satya Nadella and his family, because I just don't know how you cope with the death of a child. I doubt that it will be any comfort to Satya Nadella and his family right now, of course. But I like to hope that in time, they will take comfort from the fact that I believe Zane Nadella's legacy will be that Microsoft, through Satya Nadella's awareness of accessibility and disability issues, is a much more accessible and inclusive place. That is a wonderful and profound legacy to leave. It doesn't bring him back, but it does mean that he will be remembered. He will have a place in Microsoft's history. I know, of course, that Satya Nadella will never become aware of or hear this, but I found the news of Zane's death very, very moving. And so a long way away from this part of the world, I'm thinking of them. I send them all the best and lots of love and comfort during such a difficult time. Have you had a look at Windows 11 lately? If you are still of the view that Windows 11 is largely a cosmetic change and that there's little to get excited about, you may want to rethink that because I think that was certainly the case when Windows 11 was first announced. If you were a sighted person and you took a look at Windows 11, you could instantly see a difference. You'd have to fossick around a little bit more as a blind person to even know that you were on Windows 11. Now that is changing, and there are features being added to Windows 11 that really do add value. I did upgrade to Windows 11 over my summer break, and one of the things I do enjoy very much is the dictation feature. It isn't perfect. Sometimes it inserts punctuation when you've dictated it. Sometimes it repeats itself. Sometimes it repeats itself. But it is pretty good, and the dictation feature was something that grabbed me immediately. Of all the dictation features that I've used, be it on iOS and Android and Windows, this one does seem to be the most accurate overall for me. I do not like the sound scheme in Windows 11. As a hearing-impaired person who's also blind, so I pick up a lot of useful information from the Windows sounds, they are too faint and unobtrusive for me. I can understand why people with certain impairments may find them less jarring, 
But for me, they are a step backwards. And I'm sure that if I search around enough, I can probably install the Windows 10 sound scheme on Windows 11. I do intend to do that at some point because I find the current Windows 11 sounds just too faint for them to be helpful to me. I have now put my ThinkPad on the Windows 11 Insider builds. So I've kind of got a buck each way on this. I have not upgraded my desktop PC here in the studio that I also use as my primary work machine to the Windows 11 Insider builds. I am running the latest release build of Windows 11 here in the studio, but the ThinkPad is running the Insider builds. And there is a lot that is changing and a lot to like in terms of accessibility in Windows 11. There is now full voice control available in at least some markets. There are some changes to Narrator. And one of the big changes to Narrator is that there are some natural voices that have been added that you can choose from. I'm very pleased about this because one of the things that keeps me on Microsoft Edge is that when you use the immersive reader function, not only do you get rid of a lot of the clutter that can make reading news on the web so difficult because the news is interspersed with all sorts of ads and unwanted stuff, but you also have the ability to use the read loud function that's built into the immersive reader. And for some time, the voices available in that read aloud function are stunning. And there are similar, I'm not sure they're always identical, but there are similar voices available in Microsoft Word itself. So you can go in Microsoft Office 365 versions of Word at least into the review tab. And in the review tab, there's a read aloud button. And I am now finding that if I'm just reading a document, not proofing it, but just having a document open to have it read to me, I am now always using that read aloud function because the voices are very pleasant. You can listen to them for a long time without the fatigue that you sometimes get with older text-to-speech engines, but you can also speed them up and still have them intelligible at fast speeds. This has meant that when I use Voice Dream Reader, for instance, which is an app I make extensive use of on my iPhone, I keep hankering for those voices. And I keep searching around with all the voices that Voice Dream Reader offers, thinking, isn't there something that comes close to this experience that I'm getting on Windows? And there really isn't. I love these voices for being read to in Windows 11. Well, now in the Rater, there are natural voices that you can choose from. When these first came to the Insider builds, they were not available in my part of the world. And I was really disappointed by this. But in the latest Insider build, build 22.567, that dropped just a couple of days ago, the voices do seem to be more widely available. If they are available to you and you're running this Insider build and you haven't found them yet, what happens is the first time that you run Narrator, when you've got a compatible build, it will come up with a dialogue and tell you that these natural voices are available and do you want to install them. I have obviously done that, and it just so happens that I have my handy-dandy, incredible, edible ThinkPad with me now. So I'm going to run the racer with one of these voices already running, and it is the guy voice. We'll have a bit of an extensive play with these, because I know there's a lot of interest in these voices and how good they really are. So I'm going to run the Rater by pressing Control Windows Enter. I have obviously quit JAWS first. Melt coming up dot docs, compatibility mode, word window, melt coming up dot docs, compatibility mode, editing. What that is saying is M-A-L-P, 
for Mosin at Large podcast coming up. And this is the promotional message that I send out to the Mosin media list, which I hope you are subscribed to, and the Mosin at Large blog. Before I go into narrator and have a look at the options, let's just read this. This is the Microsoft Guy voice at the moment. So I'm going to perform a continuous read by pressing the narrator key with down arrow. In the next episode, new goodies in Lisi 7, accessibility issues in Uber apps, songs you love and hate and more. Kia Ora Mosin at Largers. Our amazing community has put together another informative, thought-provoking listen for you, and it'll be in your podcast app this weekend. Here's a sneak peek of what you can expect. You're welcome to comment on these or any other issues that are on your mind. Many of us make extensive use of Uber's apps, both to go places and to get food delivered. After a brief period where accessibility of Uber Eats was restored, the latest update has seen Uber Eats take a dramatic accessibility step backwards, and the issues with the Uber ride-sharing app persist. If you'd like to share what you're experiencing, as well as how you've tried to draw Uber's attention to the issues and what response you've received, you are most welcome. On a much lighter note, last week a listener asked us to discuss songs we love, songs we hate, and songs we remember being sung to us when we were children. Of course, simply naming songs we like and don't like is a bit boring, so I'd like to know what is it about these songs that pushes all the right or the wrong buttons for you. We can have some fun with this. Lisi from Harkin Consultancy is an incredible productivity and usability enhancement tool compatible with JAWS. It's due for a major update with version 7 being released next week. I talked with Brian Harkin to get the scoop on all that's new in 7, and we might even get a few hints about what else is in the pipeline. Dude, there's plenty more on the show as well. I will stop reading there. That's the Microsoft Guy voice at its defaults. The pitch is 10, and we'll have a look at what the rate is in just a moment. To have a look at these other voices, I'm going to press Windows Control N. That will bring up the narrator settings window. Settings window, narrator, toggle switch on. I'm going to press the tab key. Show all settings, button, collapsed. Keyboard shortcut for narrator, toggles, narrator home, show all, complete guide to narrator. Choose a voice, Microsoft Guy, natural, English, United States, combo box, collapsed. Now, if you have not installed all of these voices, if I press tab one more time. Show all settings, button, collapsed. And again. Add natural voices, add button. There's an add natural voices button. If I go in here, it'll tell me there are no more voices to add. You've added them all already. So I won't do that. I'll go back with shift tab. Choose a voice, show all settings, button, collapsed. This is a standard Windows 11 paradigm where sometimes things are hidden, they're collapsed, and you press a button to expand them. I'll press Enter to do that. Show all settings, button, expanded. Now when I tab, we've got some control over this voice. Speed, slider at 10. It's defaulting to a speed of 10. Somewhat counterintuitively, you speed it all the way up by pressing the end key. 20. And now it's gone up to 20. Settings window. Show all settings, button, expanded. Speed, slider at 20. So that may be quite fast for many people. And how slow does it go? Zero. Show all settings. Button expanded. Speed slider at zero. So we'll go up to five. One, two, three, four, five. And have a listen to that. Settings window. Now we'll go back to ten. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Settings window. And 15. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Settings, form fields. Show all settings, button, expanded. I bumped the touch screen there. Choose a voice, Microsoft guy, natural, English, United States, combo box, collapsed, complete guide to narrator, open, button. So that is at a reasonable clip, but as you can hear, it's still very intelligible. Choose a voice, Microsoft guy, natural, English, United States, show all settings, button, expanded. 
Speed, slider at 15. I'm going to go back to 10. 14, 13, 12, 11, 10. And if I press tab, pitch, slider at 10. The pitch also defaults to 10. Let's have a look at how much range there is. We'll press the end key. 20. And now it's gone up to 20 and it sounds very different. Settings window. Speed, slider at 10. Pitch, slider at 20. It sounds like it's a tape that's been sped up, actually. <laughs> and if I go all the way down to the bottom by pressing the home key. Zero. Speed, slider at 10. So that does sound like, again, a tape that has been slowed down. Settings window. Pitch, slider at zero. And it doesn't take that much of a change for that kind of tape effect to be noticeable. So if I go back up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So let's say I lowered the pitch to seven. Settings window. Speed, slider at ten. It still slightly sounds to me like a tape that's been slowed down. Pitch, slider at seven. But it's definitely livable. Eight. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, speed, slider at 10, pitch, slider at 13, 12, 11, 10. By the time you get to 13, it really sounds like it's been on the helium, dude. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like it's been on the helium. But as you can hear, that is a very pleasant voice to listen to. Let's have a look at the other voices. Speed, slider at, show all settings, button, choose a voice, Microsoft guy, natural, English, United States, combo box, collapsed. I'm going to up arrow. Microsoft Aria, natural, English, United States, one of 21, selected. This is Microsoft Aria, and again, the defaults are being used right now. I'm going to go back into Microsoft Word. Malp coming up dot docs, Malp. And go to the top of the file and just read that passage again for you, this time with the Microsoft Aria voice. In the next episode, new goodies in Lisi 7, accessibility issues in Uber apps, songs you love and hate and more. Kia Ora Mosin at Largers. Our amazing community has put together another informative, thought-provoking listen for you, and it'll be in your podcast app this weekend. Here's a sneak peek of what you can expect. You're welcome to comment on these or any other issues that are on your mind. Many of us make extensive use of Uber's apps, both to go places and to get food delivered. After a brief period where accessibility of Uber Eats was restored, the latest update has seen Uber Eats take a dramatic accessibility step backwards. And the issues with the Uber ride sharing app persist. If you'd like to share what you're experiencing, as well as how you've tried to draw Uber's attention to the issues, and what response you've received, you are most welcome. On a much lighter note, last week a listener asked us to discuss songs we love, songs we hate, and songs we remember being sung to us when we were children. Of course, simply naming songs we like and don't like is a bit boring, so I'd like to know what is it about these songs that pushes all the right, or the wrong, buttons for you. We can have some fun with this. Lisi from Harkin Consultancy is an incredible productivity and usability enhancement tool compatible with JAWS. It's due for a major update with version 7 being released next week. I talk with Brian Harkin to get the scoop on all that's new in 7, and we might even get a few hints about what else is in the pipeline. Dude. I have to let it go to the dude bit because I like to hear how it interprets that. It's dude with an exclamation mark at the end. That's the ARIA voice. I'm going to Alt-Tab because the narrator window is still open. Setting. Settings window. Choose a voice. Microsoft ARIA. Natural. And I will down arrow. Microsoft guy. Natural. And one more time. Microsoft Jenny. Natural. English. United States. 3 of 21, selected.
This is the third of The Natural Voices, and it's called Microsoft Jenny. I'm not sure if Jenny Lay Fleury got it named after her or what the deal is, but that's all right. We'll alt tab into Word. Melt coming up dot docs. And we will go to the top of the file and have narrator read that same passage again, this time with the Jenny voice. In the next episode, new goodies in Lisi 7, accessibility issues in Uber apps, songs you love and hate and more. Kia or Mosin at Largers. Our amazing community has put together another informative, thought-provoking listen for you, and it'll be in your podcast app this weekend. Here's a sneak peek of what you can expect. You're welcome to comment on these or any other issues that are on your mind. Many of us make extensive use of Uber's apps, both to go places and to get food delivered. After a brief period where accessibility of Uber Eats was restored, the latest update has seen Uber Eats take a dramatic accessibility step backwards. And the issues with the Uber ride-sharing app persist. If you'd like to share what you're experiencing, as well as how you've tried to draw Uber's attention to the issues and what response you've received, you are most welcome. On a much lighter note, last week a listener asked us to discuss songs we love, songs we hate, and songs we remember being sung to us when we were children. Of course, simply naming songs we like and don't like is a bit boring, so I'd like to know what is it about these songs that pushes all the right, or the wrong, buttons for you. We can have some fun with this. Lisi from Harkin Consultancy is an incredible productivity and usability enhancement tool compatible with JAWS. It's due for a major update with version 7 being released next week. I talk with Brian Harkin to get the scoop on all that's new in 7, and we might even get a few hints about what else is in the pipeline. Dude. And I'll stop reading at that point. I've had a couple of questions about these voices that I'll attempt to answer. How responsive are they? Clearly, they sound very pleasant when you're reading like this. But how good are they for editing? Well, if I just arrow around this document a character at a time, I'll go left. Not too bad. I suspect on my desktop machine, they'd be a little bit more responsive because there's a lot more processor power there. I think that eloquence is more responsive, but it's quite marginal. So that's pretty good, actually. And if I go into a new document. Document 1, Word Window, Document 1, Editing. I'm going to turn Character Echo on. Character Reading on. And now I'm going to type at a reasonable speed. So it's not too bad, really, for a voice that is sounding so natural. What I also find intriguing about these voices is that they are tiny to install. I'm not sure why that is, because clearly they are some sort of concatenated speech. I don't know whether a lot is coming down from the cloud or how this works, but each voice is only about 10 or 12 megabytes to install. And when you consider the quality of these voices, that intrigues me. I'm not sure what's going on with that, how it's possible to have voices sounding so good, but the footprint on your local machine being so tiny. And the big one, can you use these voices with JAWS? The answer, no, not that I have found. I believe at the moment, at least, these voices are exclusive to Narrator. I don't know whether Microsoft intends to keep it that way or whether eventually you will be able to go into the JAWS voice settings and choose Microsoft's options and find these voices there. But right now, you cannot. So that is a look at the new voices in Narrator. Coming to Windows soon, if you want to play with these, you can, of course, get into the Windows Insider program. Are there risks in doing that? Yes, but so far I haven't had anything catastrophic happen to me. I'm knocking on the wood pretty extensively right there. 
You can enroll in the Windows Insider program by pressing Windows I. To get into Windows settings, you go into Update and Security. You will find the Windows Insider program there. These are Windows 11 voices, by the way. So you will need a Windows 11 capable PC and you will need to have made the jump to Windows 11. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt into the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosen.org. Stay in the know with Mosin at Large. Time to talk Apple things, and as we've been saying on Mosin at Large for a wee while now, Apple is having a spring event. It is, as we were expecting, on the 8th of March, and the theme for this one is peak performance. What can we expect at this? Well, there is going to be, it appears, a new iPhone SE. This will be the third generation of iPhone SE, and the big change here will be that it has 5G We'll have to see whether it also includes the W1 chip because uh, the iPhone SE that's currently out there is pretty deficient in some key areas. For example, if you have the iPhone SE that's currently out there, you can't make full use of all the Apple AirTag features, such as precision finding. It'd be nice if that was added to the new iPhone SE as well, so we will have to see. A new iPad Air is expected. It's been a while since we've had one of those. We're expecting a new Mac Mini and a new MacBook Pro with the M2 chip. We think it's going to be called the M2 This is Apple's ARM-based processors continuing to evolve. They are a phenomenon, aren't they? No doubt about that. They're doing exceptionally well, and we should be hearing more about the evolution of these ARM-based Apple processors at next week's event. I'd be interested to see whether there's any more talk of services, because there are some interesting rumors bubbling about including the idea that Apple is going to compete with Audible and create an audiobook subscription service. Now, I don't know whether that's going to be ready for next week or not, but certainly there are just those whispers that that's what Apple is working on. And services are a key revenue stream for Apple now. They're looking for new ways to monetize services. Maybe we'll find out about more bundles next week. It'd be nice to think that there are one or two surprises that many of the analysts didn't get. Because you hear so much before these Apple events now that it's almost like some Grinch has spoiled your Christmas, you know. You just turn up to confirm what has already been leaked to a lot of people who watch this stuff. If you want to watch this stuff, the Apple Peak Performance event, it is on March the 8th, US time, at 10 a.m. Pacific. That equates to 1 p.m. US Eastern time, If you're elsewhere in the world, let's do some translation for you. At this time of the year, it's actually going to be a very civilized 7 a.m. in New Zealand, so I won't even need to set an alarm for that one. It'll be 6 p.m. in the UK. It'll be a relatively civilized 5 a.m. in Eastern Australian time, thanks to the difference. Of course, the clocks are going forward in the United States in just one more week, so those time zone differences are going to get a bit more punishing for those of us in this part of the world. And of course, in this part of the world, it is the next day, so it'll be the 9th of March in New Zealand and Australia and the Southern Hemisphere that this event takes place. And of course, all of this means that iOS 15.4 is getting ready to drop officially and Apple released beta 5 of iOS 15.4 earlier in the week. 
There do seem to have been some substantial Braille improvements. I don't think it's perfect, but what software ever is perfect? It does seem to me, in my limited use, that with Beta 5, there are no or perhaps fewer panning issues than there were before. So that's very positive if that is the case. I will be interested to hear what other people are experiencing as they become familiar with this latest version that is out to developers and for public testing. It is a much-anticipated release, this one, because you've got the ability to use Face ID with a mask on, even if you're not wearing an Apple Watch. And there is a new American Siri voice available in this one as well. And there are a few other nuggets as well. So it is going to be a fairly substantial release coming up very shortly. Let's go back to the issue that Graham raised about Apple Music and the fact that if you're listening to albums that should be gapless, like Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon or the Abbey Road medley, On some devices, you get gaps, and it really messes with the enjoyment of the music. Ian Lackey says, It seems that Apple gives us a choice with their music service. If you want gapless playback, you have to turn off Dolby Atmos and lossless playback in the music settings. I have turned these settings off as I value gapless playback. On the Braille issue with an uppercase B, Ian says, I am still getting panning freezes. I have found that toggling speech shows that the Braille has moved on, but the display hasn't shown it until speech has been toggled. Hope that makes sense. Yes, it does, Ian. I have seen this as well. And Ian wrote this at the time of iOS 15.4 beta 3. Dean Chowton says, I have been trialing Apple Music for just over three weeks now. I play it on my stereo paired Echoes. I just happened to want to play Pink Floyd albums, such as Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here. They play properly, no stopping between tracks. Unlike Spotify, when I played The Wall, so many stoppages between tracks, just a terrible listening experience. Spotify also does this with live albums, unlike Apple Music. The thing that really annoys me about Apple Music, though, is if you're playing a playlist or album and you pause it and you say want to listen to the radio news, when you go back to play Apple Music, it's lost its place and starts from the beginning again. Mr. Google Man tells me that many other people have experienced this also. Thanks, Dean. Good to know that this is working as it should be working if you're playing on Spotify and the Echo. So maybe Ian has come up with the magic formula. I shall have to go in there and turn spatial audio and lossless off, much as it pains me to do so, because why should I listen to non-lossless music? But anyway, I'll try it and see if it fixes it. Graham, you might like to do the same. Janine Stanley has been in touch with an email called Two Finger Scrub Troubles and says, yes, try saying that three times fast. I've noticed in iOS 15 that I too have had difficulty consistently performing the two finger scrub gesture. It seems to need to be perfectly horizontally aligned and in the center of the screen in order to work. Otherwise, I end up in the control panel. What control panel? I'm I'm intrigued about where you're going when you can't perform the gesture, Janine. She says, I have no difficulty performing the gesture, no hand issues, etc. I do have fairly advanced arthritis in my hands, but that's not the gesture I find problematic. The one I find more difficult is the rotor gesture. Yeah, that is one that a lot of people struggle with. Janine continues, this is in part why I usually use a Bluetooth keyboard. All that said, back to the two-finger scrub. 
This seems to happen more on my iPhone 11 Pro running iOS 15.4 beta than it does on my iPhone 12 Pro running the public version of iOS 15.3. So, Marissa, you're not alone, though I'm not finding the same type of redirect with the scrub. It's definitely much fussier in iOS 15. I would play a little bit of Michael Jackson's You Are Not Alone at this point, but I'd probably get pinged for that, so I will just say You Are Not Alone, Marissa. I've not seen it, but Janine says she has. Here's an interesting email from the good Dr. Sally, and she says, I have found that you can set up the different commands to different gestures. However, I want to be able to do a particular gesture that runs a shortcut. For example, move my email from students to a particular folder with one gesture instead of a lot. Thanks in advance. As you know, I'm new to voiceover on my iPhone, but have used it for a while on my Mac. Well, I have good news for you, Sally. It is definitely possible to assign shortcuts to gestures. The one thing that you might find is that you've run out of gestures. And if that's the case, on newer iPhones, you can assign a double tap and a triple tap of the back of the phone to voiceover functions, including assigning a shortcut. I use the Google Assistant a lot on my iPhone, for example, because it gives more sensible responses than Siri does most of the time. So I have my triple tap of the back of the phone assigned to that. But I also use Castro to listen to a lot of podcasts. We reviewed Castro way back when on Mosin at Large. It's improved even more since then. It is, in my view, by a long way, the best podcast player for iOS. I listen to a lot more podcasts than I used to because of Castro and its amazing user interface. It is simplicity, but it's also power. And that's the best thing you can hope for in a user interface. And what I've done is I've assigned a gesture when voiceover is running to play Castro. That's an iOS shortcut. And I've also assigned another gesture to clear the current episode and skip to the next one. That means that when I'm busy doing stuff, I can start playing my podcasts without going into the app. And I can also skip a podcast and go on to the next one, all from my touchscreen. So let's have a look at this. We will talk to the magic machine. Open voiceover settings. Are we in voiceover? It doesn't say. Voiceover. Heading. Yes, we are. So the first thing we want to do is touch. Commands. Button. The commands button. So I'll double tap that. All commands. Button. Now, you may think that the all commands button is not where you want to be because that's obviously very busy. And if you want to assign a touch gesture, why don't you just flick right? Touch gestures. And go there. But when you do, you can't do what you want to do. So we'll flick back. All commands button. And we will double tap the all commands button. Interaction button. Now I'm going to swipe through this and you'll hear all the different options that we have here. There are lots. Basic navigation button. Text navigation button. Advanced navigation button. Editing button. Rotor button. Scrolling button. Speech and audio button. Output button. Voiceover button. System button. Other button. Shortcuts button. And actually, for reference, I think you'll find that shortcuts is the last on this list. Shortcuts Yep, it is. So you can, once you go into the screen, perform a four-finger tap on the bottom half of the screen, and you will get right to shortcuts, which is where you want to be. I'll double tap. Add to Alexa shopping list button. Now we have a list of all of my shortcuts. And if I flick right... Baker Street button. Well, no! Uh, That's my command for the H-E-Y Google. 
so that I don't trigger the whole world when I want to summon it. Check Apple order status button. Check spelling button. Check availability button. Clear this episode button. All right, here's one. Clear this episode. And I do have this assigned to a gesture. So if I double tap. Touch gestures. Heading. And flick to the right. The first thing we get is touch gestures. Two finger quadruple tap. Actions available. And I do have actions available. So if I flick down. Delete. Activate. Default. I can delete and activate it. If I flick to the right. Add gesture. Button. I can add another gesture. Keyboard shortcuts. Heading. I can also assign if this isn't too confusing, a keyboard shortcut to an iOS shortcut. Add keyboard shortcut button. Commands are prefixed with the voiceover modifier key. Control plus option or caps lock. And that's all. So you can't assign a Braille command to a shortcut at this point. So that is how you can go in, first create your shortcut, and then if you want to assign a shortcut to a gesture, you can absolutely do that and assign it to a keyboard command too. It is a really powerful voiceover feature. Shortcuts are fantastic. You can have so much fun with them. You can really extend the power of your phone. And then when you can combine it with this voiceover functionality, you really can do some magic. So I hope that helps, Sally, and that with your newly found shortcut prowess, you would move me into the super duper cool students folder if I were one. It was Shakespeare who said something is rotten in the state of uber accessibility. I think it was Shakespeare who said it. It comes from Hamlet, doesn't it? Anyway, when something goes so horribly wrong with accessibility at a company, you do have to wonder what has happened. Have they changed the way that the app is written? Has someone left? Because sometimes what happens is you've got one person in a company who is a real champion of accessibility, somebody who takes the time to check that everything's working okay before a release. And when that one person leaves, sometimes that's enough to upset the equilibrium of the accessibility of an app. I don't know. It's all speculation because it is so difficult to talk to anyone at Uber who can actually make a difference. You know, if you try and contact Uber support, you get these inane, unhelpful comments, and sometimes they'll tell you to uninstall and reinstall the apps, and really it's just hard to break through and talk to someone who actually understands, who's at the development level, who's even at the escalation level, so you can have a sensible conversation about being a part of the solution. You know, there are lots of us who would be quite happy to run test flight builds or do whatever it would take just so we can get our Uber experience back. I am a heavy user. I'm an Uber Diamond user, and I make extensive use of both apps when I'm not hunkering down because of a major Omicron outbreak in this country. I do use Uber Rideshare an awful lot. You know, because I'm a Diamond user, I have the fixed price from home to my office. It's really competitively priced. And most of the time, it works really well for me. As I've mentioned on this show, we do have issues from time to time when Bonnie accompanies me and we have guide dog refusals and it's an inconvenience and it can often be humiliating and stressful. But at least there is a process and the process does seem to work. So we have two quite significant accessibility issues going on in Uberland at the moment. One is not new. It's been going on for a few weeks, and we've talked about this on the podcast before. Christopher came up with a workaround for this, and it's essentially don't flick. When you're wanting to get a ride organized in the Uber Rideshare app, 
just drag your finger around the screen until you get to the point that you've selected your destination and everything will be okay. It is when you flick around the screen that the problems begin. Now, interestingly, from the dialogue I've had with people on Twitter, this is definitely affecting a lot of us, but it appears not to be affecting all of us. And I don't know why that is. There are people with the same version number as the rest of us who are having the issue who are not having the issue. And it's nothing to do with screen recognition being on or any of those obvious iOS fixes. It's something to do with the app, but I'd love to know what the variable is, why some people are seeing this and other people are not. The one that is new that has just come to Uber Eats does appear to be universal. If you have updated your Uber Eats app to the build that was released earlier this week as this podcast goes out, you will be seeing this and I will show you what it's doing. To demo it, I'm going to place an order with Tank. For those who are not in New Zealand, Tank is a salad place. They make the most amazing salads. It's very good for you. It's probably more expensive than it needs to be, but it's jolly delicious. And so I am now in the list of items that I can order from Tank, and I'm going to flick right to one that I order pretty frequently. Quinoa chicken gaji salad. Gluten underscore free. $17.90. $17.90. Button. It's a quinoa chicken goji salad. You gotta love those goji berries. Apparently they have all sorts of amazing properties. So I'm going to double tap on this because I can customize the salad. I'll do that. Quinoa ch- Close. Button. And I'll flick to the right. Quinoa chicken goji salad. Free range poached chicken. That's already what we've heard, so I'll flick right again. Adjustable. That doesn't speak. I'm not sure what that's even for. But anyway, that's by the by. Choice of extra meats. Heading. So I can choose extra meats, and I'll flick right. Choose zero to two. Free-range poached chicken. $4.50. Popular. Placeholder. And right here we see the problem. Every item on this list now has two elements. One is the title, and the other is a thing that says placeholder that doesn't seem to do anything. What used to happen before this build came out was that if you double-tapped any of these items, VoiceOver would clearly say selected. So before you added the item to the cart, you would be able to review the things that you'd selected, the customizations that you had made, and you'd be sure that you were going to get what you actually ordered. So if I flick right... Grass-fed beef, $4.50. Placeholder. Choice of extra fillings. Heading. Choose 0 to 15. Heading. Bacon. $2.50. Popular. Now, in this case, I do actually want to add bacon to this salad, so I'm going to double tap. Bacon. Plus $2.50. Popular. I have learned that it is actually now selected. My double tap has worked, but I've got no confirmation. If I flick left. Choose 0 to 15. Heading. And go right again. Bacon, plus $2.50. Popular. No confirmation that it's selected. If I flick right to this phantom item, for want of a better term. Placeholder. It doesn't tell me either. So I've got no confirmation at all that it is selected. One way that you do have sometimes, if there is a charge for the items that you're adding, is that you will obviously see the price go up on the Add to Cart button. So if I go to the bottom of the screen... Add one to cart bullet $20.40 button. You'll notice that the price has gone up from the original that was quoted, and that's because I've added the bacon, and there's a price when you've added the bacon. But really, that's the only way that I'm able to tell what I'm doing. 
is that the price is going up. If, for example, I were to add a bunch of veggies, there is no additional charge for those. So it's not clear what I'm selecting. If you're mindful, if you're careful, if you're concentrating on what you're doing, then it's obviously not a showstopper. But if you've somehow lost track of what you've selected and what you haven't, then maybe the best way is to start again and see if you can focus this time. So I do hope that they fix both of these issues. I'd like to be able to get back to ordering my rides with Uber without having to drag my finger around the screen. And I would like to be able to select items and get confirmation in Uber Eats about what it is that I've selected. I would encourage everybody who is an Uber user to report these issues. I don't know whether the number of people reporting will make a difference, but we have had these flare-ups with Uber before where they've gone through periods where accessibility has just gone weird and then it comes right again. I do hope that we come out of this trough soon and perhaps the best way to do that is well for podcasts like this to give it a bit of exposure and for all of us to take the time to report any issues. At Large Podcast. Hey, Jonathan, it's Jim from sunny Florida. I wanted to comment briefly on a few things. First off, I want to say a huge thank you to you for doing this segment about Ukraine. And I want to send a special thank you and words of support and I'm a person of faith, so I hope it's okay to share, you know, thoughts and prayers. Uh, a lot of my friends that aren't say good vibes, so I hope that's okay. Too. They've got a lot going on over there. My first reader driver with um, with a job when I worked for an uh, organization serving the blind was a Ukrainian, and um, I believe she was born in the states, but uh, uh, she was had been a marine and. Uh, a lot of other things, but she spoke Ukrainian perfectly. So uh, I've tried to reach out to her and her family here. Uh, so thank you. Also, uh wanted to, on a lighter note, comment about the abbreviations. Oh, yes. FT is what either fort or feet. So sometimes you'll be in a context, and even if it's a scanning error or whatever it's read is, you know, fort or feet, which is kind of interesting. I-N, the word in, is inches. So like even on Facebook, it's funny when someone writes something in voiceover or draws, we'll say inches. And N-A for not applicable, but it's the abbreviation for Nevada. I mean, this is so American-centric, some of it. Uh, and I'm sure they have other abbreviations when you have it set setting. But I just think that, you know, it's 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 probably going a little far I would rather it say FL and I just figure that out because some of my friends in Europe and the UK, they, they don't know our abbreviations in the States, just like I don't know theirs, you know, just wasn't taught in school or whatever. So kind of weird, but uh, I too remember the eighties. Uh, I had an Apple two GS and um, I was in the Orlando Ford area then. And we have lots of bulletin board systems or BBSs. And then, of course, here in the States, we had GE's service called Genie, G-E-N-I-E, and they worked really hard to stay accessible. Then we had CompuServe, which I know you've heard of, and then America Online, which um, a lot of organizations kind of went after because they were a graphic interface and no, not apologetic about it. Uh, their IM service was accessible or could be made accessible with scripts, but but they weren't interested in America Online or AOL. 
uh, was not interested in me accessible, which really, you know, still bugs me that that we didn't really take that argument more seriously in, in the wine community. And, you know, anyway, uh, but yes, I remember uh, lots of good uh, conversations using the mall a few times to buy CDs and other things. And then the international forums and discussion groups and then they even came out with Genies with Aladdin, and that would download messages from the different interest groups or bulletin board areas on Genie. And uh, it was really pretty cool. And I actually made some friends and traveled to visit them. So that was a, that was an interesting experience, too, very positive. Uh, I made sure it was safe, so I knew them for a while and had a few uh, backup setups just in case something didn't work out. But it was it was good. Uh, so yes, great memories of uh, the early days of the uh, infranet. I guess we could call them. I also remember when they got full and got slow. And I actually had a lot of conversations with people that were hearing impaired or deaf, uh, and they didn't know I was blind. And we got to chatting, and you know that's an interface. You know even now where. We can communicate with people even who speak other languages or or have other types of disability, and the barriers a lot of times come down with technology. Thanks, Jim. I never owned an Apple two GS, but I remember wanting one because I distinctly remember the tune that Raised Dot Computing's newsletter played. I used to get it on cassette, and it said, "This is the new Apple Two GS," and it was playing all this amazing polyphonic music with drums of sorts and everything. And I thought, "Wow, that is amazing!" But by that stage, I had migrated to the IBM PC. Yes, I used Genie as well, and a lot of these services did have technology that let you log in and download things, so you could read offline. The big package for DOS that did this on CompuServe was called Tapsys. And I think it was reasonably accessible as far as I remember. So you could, I don't even know, if if you gave me a copy of Tapsys now, I'm sure I wouldn't know what to do with it. But somehow you would subscribe to different forums. It would go in and download all the stuff from the forums you hadn't read since you last logged on, you would read and reply, and then it would upload them all. And as far as I know, the CompuServe people actually cooperated with the Tapsys people. I think it started off as an unofficial project, but then it kind of got some tacit support from within CompuServe itself. Hello, Jonathan. It's Nikki Keck, and I thought I would call in this week rather than send you an email that you would have to deal with Braille display bugs to try and uh, read in any case. I do remember the bulletin boards very well. I started out with an Apple computer and a modem, and I don't remember the speed of that modem. And I used CompuServe, and I remember reading the AP for the first time, the Associated Press. Um, And one day I, I called in to CompuServe just to read the Associated Press in the um, intermediate unit where I, uh, my local intermediate unit, they paid for the CompuServe. But, of course, I had my own phone line, actually. Um, and when I called CompuServe, that number was long distance because my family lived out in the middle of nowhere, so we didn't have anything local. So when I did that, my mom said, now, you really don't want to call CompuServe just to look at the news 
And I was like, oh, but mom, I can read this in text and it's so cool. And, you know, and I, I loved printing it out on my Braille printer. I had a VersaPoint, an original VersaPoint. Well, then after that, I did get an IBM PC with a 2400 baud modem. And I did do Blue Wave, and I did all the Echoes, and I lived in Philly at that time. And I did use CompuServe at first until I got one of those huge bills that you were talking about. But then after that, and by the way, I do not remember my ID, sorry to say. But after that whole thing, I did do bulletin boards. And and at one point, I did actually call the Blink Link and set up an account. And I used the Echoes. Now, I do not remember what I said. I do not remember at all what I actually said. But I do remember that one night, Willie Wilson called me up on the phone, <laughs> and he had our phone number because we were registered users of the Blink Link, and so you had to use, if you remember, you they asked you for your name and your phone number and all of these things when you would register, and he called me and he said, you don't say that. <laughs> I don't remember what it was, but I remember him calling me and saying, you don't want to say that on on the echo. And I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. And and, uh, so, uh, yeah, I do remember that. And and it was funny because I pictured his voice a certain way. And most of the time when I picture somebody's voice to sound a way, they don't sound at all the way I picture them. He did for some reason. He sounded exactly the way I pictured him to sound. So anyway, uh, those are my big (laughs) memories of the bulletin boards. And by the way, I agree with you about the screen readers. I do think 33M or 33M would be better than trying to interpret it because the problem is I've, I've seen this before where users edit their dictionary managers too to be a certain way. But then, of course, it's not intuitive enough to know that if that same expression is used somewhere else, it's going to interpret it wrong. And so... Uh, that is a problem. And I do actually, to answer the question about the image descriptions, I like to see them, even if they don't have any uh, relationship to the text. I just, I like to be able to know what's there. I feel that if a sighted person can find out that a man is walking down the street and that's the image being shown on the on the website, then I want to know that too. So those are my comments. Have a great day when you Hear this, and thanks for the podcast. On Twitter, follow Mosin at Large for information about the podcast, the latest tech news, and links to things we talk about on the podcast. That's Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter. Hi, Jonathan. It's Peter from Robin Hood County, hoping you're well. The song I like the most is Sleep to Dream by Betty Levette. This is because she has such a great voice, and... It is a very raunchy song. I really like that one. The song I hate, it's Young Girl by Gary Puckett and the Union Gap. When I was at college in the late 60s, there was a guy who put this on the gramophone in the common room every day. And we heard it at least three or four times a day. And to be honest, it drove me up the wall. And the song my mum used to sing me was a song called Past Three O'Clock. And it went something on the lines of Past Three O'Clock on a cold, frosty morning. Past Three O'Clock, come our masters all. And apparently, when I was a baby, my Aunt Dolly used to bounce me up and down singing any old iron. 
which is by Harry Champion, I think, an old music hall artist. And I think there was one that she sang called If It Wasn't For The Houses In Between. And I can't really remember. Oh, yes, I can. It's Gus Elan. Thanks very much, Peter. I'm kind of with you. I get where you're coming from with the Gary Packett thing. Even if you hadn't heard that song again and again, it is dodgy, that song. And the thing is, most of his songs sounded very much the same. If you've heard one Gary Packett song, you've heard them all, haven't you? Your comments about musical songs remind me of the My Music Show, which was a BBC comedy panel game, for those who are not familiar with it. It was a spin-off of the My Word Show. And at the end of the panel game, they would have a round where the panellists would sing a song. And Dennis Norden in particular, but Frank Muir a lot of the time as well, would take these wonderful old obscure and quite cute musical songs and sing them. Really enjoyed that. And I've often thought I'd love to be able to find, if they were ever made, albums of particularly those old songs that Dennis Norden used to dig up because a lot of them were just hilarious and extremely catchy. Love those old musical tunes. In New Zealand, Dean says what a field day we could have trying to narrow down one's favourite all-time songs. Just impossible in my case, but here are just a few that are a must for me. The first ever song I remember hearing was John Rolls' Cheryl Moana Marie. Well, that was a huge hit here in New Zealand. Dean continues, Mum had the 45, and I would have been sitting in front of their majestic radiogram. I would eventually beat the 45 to death. It literally wore out. Next, we have Tragedy by the Bee Gees. And on a portable record player in the eye ward at Waikato Hospital, I would drive the nurses up the wall as I would play it on full belt. I even got moved to the end of the ward into my own room. Well, see, that's a good reason to play Tragedy by the Bee Gees. Next, says Dean, we go to my all-time favourite year of 1985 and Treat Her Like a Lady by The Temptations. Oh man, I remember that song because by that stage I was working as a DJ in an after-school job at a skating rink and I remember spinning that track up on the vinyl for skaters to dance to. He said a song that always cheered me up and could make you feel good when things weren't going well. Songs I heard and cannot stand... This applies to these artists with everything they've done. Oh, dear. Van Morrison. Neil Diamond. What? The Carpenters? Oh, no, you're getting worse, Dean. Just ghastly and hideous. Oh, my goodness. It just goes to show, doesn't it? One person's ceiling is another person's floor. One person's medicine is another person's poison. You know that great old song that goes, If I were a carpenter and you were a lady. Well... Lena has sent an email with a subject line for the lady carpenter. So you see, being a carpenter and a lady are not mutually exclusive. Lena says, hello, Jonathan. I'm sorry that her name escapes me, but you know it. I do, Lena. I do. And for only twice my normal fee, I will tell you what it is. It's Rebecca. It was Rebecca who was asking about carpentry. The lady in Canada who wants to learn about carpentry. Bookshare has a number of the NCCER handbooks. Some are basic and would answer the question mentioned in today's show. NCCER provides education, training and other skill building help for those who want to do carpentry and other aspects of construction. And Lena provides the URL to a Bookshare version of a book on fasteners and such. As always, says Lena, this year's shows are interesting. 
Best to you and Bonnie. Thank you, Lena. Always good to hear from you. Thank you for the helpful tip. And hopefully, Rebecca, that's a resource that you can draw from. I am curious, though. I'll ask my device. What is NCCER? Okay. I found this on the web for what is NCCER. Check it out. Yeah. About NCCER Vertical Line Pearson Qualifications. NCCER is a non-profit education foundation created in 1996 as the National Center for Construction Education and Research. There we go. That's what it stands for. I don't know why Siri couldn't have just told me that, but whatever. An email now from Andy Ribsha who says, Hi, Jonathan. Regarding the inquiry from Keith about audio metering, those you mentioned for use in Reaper are very good. Additionally, if one is using Goldwave, it has a detector that allows for three thresholds. As the audio exceeds each one, a different tone is heard. All this is adjustable and can tell you a lot about the RMS and peak values in your project. Stay well, says Andy, and enjoy your summer. Hello, Jonathan and fellow Mosin at Large listeners. It's Gary here. On the topic of treadmills, I was quite an app runner a couple of years ago, and I like to have a arm on a treadmill, not to hold on to them. I don't like holding on to anything on the treadmill. It affects my pacing and my balance. And I especially don't like holding on the front of a treadmill because then you tend to lean forward. So what I like to do is, like when I run with my sighted runner, I use my arm actions quite a bit, obviously swinging your arms when you run. So what I would do is generally I just put my left arm on the side of the arm hold and just let it scrape backwards and forwards as I'm running. And I would feel where I am by using that guide on the armrest and I'd know if I'm going too far back by this little thing that juts out. Then I got another treadmill which didn't have any armrests, it only had front holds. So what we done there is we tied a broomstick with uh, quite a number of cable ties and it actually works very well. What actually happened was when I was running with this thing over time, my arm scraped this broomstick and it actually became smooth. So then eventually when I started running a little bit too far back, as sometimes happens, I would feel that the broom gets a little bit rougher. The texture of the broom gets rougher. So then I knew, all right, well, it's time to just increase my speed just a little bit to go forward again to run in the spot where I'm used to running so I don't tumble off the back of the treadmill and hurt myself. So that worked pretty well for me. And I was uh, pretty fit at one point. You know, I would run 10Ks every day. And on weekends, I generally do races where I do 15Ks or 20, uh, 21Ks, which is a half marathon. And by no means, uh, I was never a fast runner. My best, K for a, my best time for a 10K was 62 minutes. And I would do anywhere between one hour, two minutes, and one hour, six minutes for a 10K and two minutes and 30 seconds for a 21K. Obviously, I, lo- I prefer running outside with uh, sighted runners. And they've got to be quite a bit fitter than me because they've got to talk to you while you're running just guiding you with approaching speed bumps pavements up or down etc etc so it's always good to have a runner that's fitter than you that's guiding you so you can obviously do your normal thing and you're concentrating and that sort of things that's pretty much it on the treadmills and if i may add this in don't forget to tune into a little bit of this and a little bit of that 3 a.m and p.m use eastern weekdays and uh, thanks again for a great podcast
We have talked about Lisi on the show before. It is a veritable Swiss army knife, really, for jaws. It does all sorts of things, including drumming, if you really wanted to. And my guest once again is Brian Hartgen of Hartgen Consultancy. And we've got Brian back on the podcast because Lisi 7 is being released. And I thought it would be good to talk about some of the new features. So welcome back, Brian. Thank you very much. It was episode 123 when I was here last time. Oh, how time flies. It's hard to describe, Lisi, but I guess that's what you do because it's your product. If somebody said to you, what actually is Lisi? How do you succinctly describe it? Well, it serves two groups of different users. It's for the complete computer beginners because there is a menu structure associated with it. So if you wanted to drive some elements of your PC via a menu structure, and you just wanted to use the arrow keys and and not much more, then it's that. But most people, I would say probably about 97, 98% of people actually purchase it for what we call Lisi Advanced. And as you say, there are so many tools, utilities and services in there it really does improve productivity for JAWS users and it makes some applications more accessible as well. One of the things I did over my summer break was to read the entire Lisi manual and I was taking notes while I did that. And whenever I came across a little function and I thought, you know, I could really use this. Things like when I open a Word document, a lot of the time I do appreciate, particularly in a long Word document, being returned to the place that I was at. It's like a notes taker used to be. And I made a note in a little Word document, ironically enough, of all the functions that I keep thinking, yeah, that's pretty cool. I will use that sometime and just wove all of them into my workflow. And that has been an incredible productivity boost for me now that I'm back at work. I'm very glad to hear that. I've been doing something very similar this week. I've been going through the entire documentation, all 220 pages of it, (laughs) um, and making lots of amendments and, of course, adding full descriptions of the new features that we're going to talk about today. In terms of learning all of this stuff, there are two choices. If you like reading documentation, you can certainly do that. And of course, one of the advantages of doing that is that it's all searchable. But you also have these things called Lisi Bytes. What are they? Lisi Bytes are very short audio tutorials that you can download from our website. And they just teach a particular topic. So you can see immediately before you download it what the subject matter is going to be you can download it and it's about a five or ten minute tutorial in most cases as to how to use a particular function so it's nice and concise now some of those are going to be updated during the course of this year because we are changing some of the way that some of our core leasy features work but at the moment most of them are fairly current still Is there a danger in doing that, do you think? I mean, if somebody updates to Lisi and suddenly a series of commands or workflow that they might be used to doesn't work the same as it used to, you're going to inconvenience users by doing that? I try not to change keystrokes, especially if we can at all avoid it um, because of the reason that you've pointed out. But if there is a bit of a change to an interface that 
would suit everybody for the better, then I think the end results are worthwhile. Now, one of the leasy bites I can think of, for example, is that of emoji entering emoji characters into social media platforms or indeed uh, documents, wherever you want to put them. That, I think, was the very first Lisi Byte. Well, we have the ability to insert those characters, but we only have a select few uh, characters that you can put in there. So I think it's about 150 Well, we want to include the full range of close to 4,000 of those emoji characters. But it's a question of how we design that interface so it's not a huge list of 4,000 items uh, that you would have to get through. So there will be some redesigning of that. So it's as small as we can make it. Well, smiling face with squinting eyes. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so would you like to take us through then some of the things that you particularly think are noteworthy in Lisi 7? I would love to. So when we started talking about Lisi last time on the podcast, you'll remember that we talked about a utility within Lisi called Elegance for L Braille, where you can control your computer with the Braille entry keyboard. Now, JAWS gives you the ability to do that anyway, but it actually can be quite difficult sometimes to manage and to remember all the different key sequences. With this, you just type what you want to happen. So if there's a particular Windows command or a screen reading command that you happen to know, you can type it in, such as Windows D or insert up arrow, that kind of thing. As long as you know it, then you can type it. You can also create abbreviations as well to launch particular files and do all kinds of other things. Well, when I last spoke to you, we had just launched that particular feature and we've received very, very good reaction to it. I can't believe it, actually. People are saying that they love it, and others are saying, will it work with my particular display? Well, obviously, as I pointed out to you last time, this is a slow process to get this working, but we now have it in Lisi 7 for the Braille Sense 6. So if you have a Braille Sense connected to your computer, you can use its keyboard to drive all aspects of your PC. And you can't do that ordinarily. When you connect a Braille Sense, it acts as a Braille display, but there are only certain things that you can do. You certainly can't drive the whole PC with it. And this came out of our Braille Sense training course, which is very extensive and that we've got going on at the moment. So that is the first major feature. That is exciting because the appeal of L-Braille is obviously that you've got this Windows-capable device in a very blind-friendly package. There's no screen because we don't need it. But boy, I, even as somebody who used to live in that ecosystem, did find it hard to commit all of those combinations to memory to efficiently use them. So I can understand why that feature is popular with anybody who has a Braille input keyboard. I can't even remember what all the different keyboard commands yeah. are at all. Um, yeah. And uh, when I put my L Braille on, sometimes I just want to do something quite quickly with it. And I just resort to this 
because it's just so much easier. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So that's great that it's being extended. Do you th- see further extensions in future or do you think this is it in terms of supported devices? No, I'd like to see it. Um, I've been asked for it to be included with some other displays. And I think now that I've got the evidence of two successful modules for this so we've got the l braille and we've got the braille sense hopefully it will go down well with the braille sense and people will like it and that perhaps gives me some leverage to approach some other braille display manufacturers and say would it be possible for us to loan one of your braille displays temporarily so that we can try to get this working. Because we're only a small company. We can't afford all the (laughs) displays. I think we've done well to get what we have. So that might give us a little bit of clout, so to speak. Yes, I hope so. Just out of curiosity, have you had a play with the APH Mantis, which has a QWERTY keyboard but a braille display? I'm afraid I haven't, no. I would like to, um, but I would like a Braille display uh, principally because I want to write Braille on there. And my understanding is that you can't actually do that with the QWERTY keyboard, is that right? You can Braille into it within its own software. So if you open a document in the Mantis, you can Braille, but I don't believe at the moment that you can Braille into it on the computer with a, with a screen reader. So that's that's right. Uh, I just find, particularly because I'm doing so much in the Apple ecosystem, and for the reasons that we've just been talking about, the, the cryptic commands due to fewer keys, that for me, the APH Mantis has really hit the spot. It's just so efficient to have your standard, very nice, easy to type on QWERTY keyboard, but the Braille display there as well for reading back. So it's good that we've got that choice. It definitely is. And I know you're a big fan of it, uh, listening to the podcast. Yeah. And I can understand why, particularly with the uh, Apple-related bugs that have been a debacle of late. Oh, lordy, lordy. Yes. <laughs> so what's the next feature you're going to tell us about? The next feature relates to text selection. So for years, we've had a feature where you can mark the start point of text that you want to select, that you then move to the end point, you mark that. And then once the text is selected, you can manipulate it. And I was going through this process one day and I thought, why are we actually marking that end point? It Mm. isn't serving any purpose pressing that keystroke. We've started selecting the text. So JAWS knows that we're doing that. So there's no sense at all in marking the endpoint. All we need to do is to put the cursor where we want it and then carry out any one of a number of functions. So if you just bear with me one moment, I will just flick over to a document here, which I've got open. And uh, this is uh, some text from one of our training courses, which I will uh, just let it read a little snatch of. Ryan Arjun, let's now talk about favorites because this is going to be very important. Okay, so if I put the cursor to begin with on the first part of the important uh, text, not my name, that's not important. Part colon tab. Let's. Okay, and I will begin the selection here. Lizzie, begin selection. Okay, and we'll just arrow down a little bit. For you, the last thing you will want to do for sites that you view regularly is to type in a web address every time, particularly if it's very long. And if. Okay, so we'll end it after that sentence. There, if, and, period. There we go. And I've not marked the end of the selection note. Okay, so uh, I'll press now Control-C for copy. Copied. 
And the text is now copied. Now, with Lisi, we have a way of reading the contents of the clipboard. So I will just get it to do that. Lisi, let's now talk about favorites because this is going to be very important for you. The last thing you will want to do for sites that you view regularly is to type in the web address every time, particularly if it's very long. Okay, so that is exactly how it works. And you can do it with most keystrokes. So, of course, cut, copy, paste emboldening, underlining, deleting, all those kinds of things, uh, you will be able to do it there. And do you use the standard JAWS command to append to the clipboard if you want to use the append function, or is there still a LEC command for that? I think there is a LEC command for it, but yes, you can use the JAWS one yeah. as well if yeah. you want to do that. Yeah, I've got used to using the LEC command for now. But this is great because this is actually a feature that I use Gosh, in a range of contexts. But one of the things I do every day with the Mosin Explosion, for example, is I look for interesting little tidbits of fairly light news, often surveys and different things. And I put that all into one document. And so I select the beginning of the text and I scroll down. And then I have been using Lucy marking the end of the text and appending it and that sort of thing. So that's really interesting that you've essentially taken out one step there. Brilliant stuff. It's only a small thing, but over time, a keystroke will save you quite a lot of time if it's repeated over and over, won't it? See, that's a very interesting comment you make there. And this is one of the things that I particularly like about Lisi. I know that you and I are almost obsessive about productivity, and that's why we get grumpy when Microsoft, for example, imposes <laughs> verbosity and crazy things on us. And I think we're going to come back to that a bit later. But uh, all those things do add up. Efficiency does matter when your time is precious. And it's actually showing respect for one's time, isn't it? That your time is valuable, and all those little savings do add up. That's a very good way of putting it, yes. Anything that reduces the verbal clutter that you get on a day-to-day -day basis is a good thing, I think. Mm. Uh, obviously, we need it for people who are perhaps less experienced or who are coming to computing for the first time. That's well understood. But for those who are very... Uh, fluent with using their screen readers or adept at using them, I think it is absolutely essential that we have the ability to turn off every announcement that is perhaps extraneous that we don't need. Brilliant. All right, shall we go on to the next one? Uh, this is quite different, actually, in, in terms of uh, we're coming away a little bit from efficiency. This is somebody who contacted me uh, a few weeks ago, and she said, I listen to books using MP3 format. I think she said the library was called Infravox, something yes. like that. I don't know whether you've heard of it. It rings a vague bell, yeah. Okay. They're in MP3 format, and she uses... I think she was using VLC Media Player. And she said, what I want to do is, is stop the book, it's in the MP3 file, and come back to it the next day and be able to pick up where I left off. And I had a look around and I really couldn't find 
any player which allowed that to happen, not intuitively anyway. Uh, of course, you can, if you're using Winamp, you could perhaps set a bookmark if you want to do that in the middle of the file, and then you've got to go back into the bookmarks list and, and things like that. But I thought, well, we'll try and do something about this. So um, I have included this for Winamp and also VLC Media Player. So let me just flick over to an audio file. I can quickly demonstrate this for you. Okay, so I've got a, a file here. Zero six, motion at large 167.mp3. Okay, so we've got this. All right. One. And there is... There's the file. We'll just skip through it a little bit. ...is Ukraine's Sir Alex Younger so poignantly told the BBC... Okay, and I've paused it after that sentence. And now I will close it down. Okay, so we're back another day now. We're about to open the file again. And I'll press a keystroke. The Ukrainian people are being punished. And we're immediately back at that point. Now, when I developed the functionality for that, I took it a stage further. And I thought, how would it be if we created the ability to add bookmarks within VLC Media Player? Because the bookmarks dialogue in that player is horribly inaccessible. So that's what I did. And you can now create uh, bookmarks to any points in the file that you would like. You uh, bring up a dialogue and it asks you what you want to call the bookmark. So you can give it a name of your choosing. So you can set multiple bookmarks per file. Uh, you press enter. And then, of course, when you've loaded up the file next time, you can go to your list of bookmarks relative to that file. And you can just arrow down to the one that you want that you've appropriately named. And you press enter and away you go. Are those bookmarks actually VLC bookmarks or are they proprietary to Lisi itself? They are Lisi bookmarks. So if you took it to another uh, copy of VLC without Lisi installed, you wouldn't have those bookmarks? You wouldn't have them, no. iTunes, I think, has a feature where you can define a file as an audio book. But boy, it is quite complicated to do that because you've got to go into a dialogue and define it and iTunes, I guess, for listening to audiobooks is a little bit like a sledgehammer to crack a nut. So, <laughs> yeah. You definitely wouldn't want to do that, no. no. So that's really excellent. And so Thank you. that will be available, what, on any media file, essentially? Yes, it is. Yes, it works with any media file that we tried it on. Excellent. And in the audio sphere, if you like, I've included the scripts that we have for APH's Studio Recorder. So these were actually developed uh, when I created the training course that we have on the use of Studio Recorder, which is a very useful application for people who want to record speech. I know that you have used it in the past. Oh, yeah, it's a brilliant app. Yeah, it really is. And uh, there are a few areas that I thought really needed scripting. So uh, one obvious area, for example, was where you couldn't very quickly get the time, as in the elapsed time or the total time in hours, minutes and seconds format. It has to read the status bar and you can have quite a bit of information on that status bar. But the other thing that really got me was that with Studio Recorder, when you press the space bar, it starts playing the 
uh, file and then you press it again and that pauses it. Now, a lot of us who have used sound editors in the past, we will have got used to pressing enter in order to pause the audio playback. And it makes more sense, I think, to press enter because you can really, with the arrow keys, get a nice tight edit. And that's the way that I've been used to working. So we have the ability to turn that on and off. We call it the alternative stop method. And that means that you can go back to pressing enter if that's what you want in order to uh, to turn that uh, um, feature on. Isn't it interesting the way people work? So one of the first things that I do with any new installation of Reaper is fix it so that the space bar does toggle, does do play pause like Studio <laughs> Recorder. So I've solved the problem by going the other way. Okay. <laughs> Well, at least people have that if, yes, if uh, no, they want. I mean, I mean yes. that's right, because it, that does make it more consistent with pretty much every other sound editor out there. Soundforge does it the way that you're talking about, and I don't know about Goldwave, but, but it is a pretty common practice. Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. So people have got that if they want. And that there are some other dialogue boxes where certain captions weren't being read and things like that. So uh, they are all part of the scripts, which people can get. Now, I come to a feature which I hadn't even appreciated was a problem until about two weeks ago when I got an email from a man called Oleg Shefkin. Yes. I hope I've got the pronunciation Big correct. Big shout out to Oleg right now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He has become a, a Lisi user of late and he is excellent at sending in suggestions for features which are very realistic to implement. And they're not crazy ideas. They're very useful. And this is definitely one of them. You will see some others as we go through the year, I'm quite sure. So this one is called alt codes. What happens if you want to type a symbol on your computer keyboard, but it's not present on the keyboard? People might not realize that you can probably do it. If you hold down the Alt key and use the number pad to type various codes, you can actually reproduce a whole variety of different signs. So, for example, if you wanted a pound sign and you haven't got one on your keyboard, that's a British pound sign, you can type 156, I think the code is. And obviously using the numpad, that does present its own challenges for us as visually impaired people. Uh, first of all, you may not even have a number pad, particularly if you've got a laptop. And second, you would have to turn on the numlock key anyway, because ordinarily it's used by JAWS. So with Lisi, we can now enter all these alt codes in two different ways. So first of all, what you can do is you can press a key on the keyboard. I've gone into Notepad now, and I'm going to go into our alt code interface. Lisi. Alt code dialog. Please type the alt code, then press enter. Leave blank for list of codes. Please type the alt code, then press enter. Leave blank for list of codes. Edit. Yes, it's like New York, New York. So good <laughs> they named it twice. <laughs> okay. So it's asking us because a lot of people know these alt codes. They're used to using them on a regular basis. So we thought, well, we have to give people the ability to enter the code. So I think I said it was 156. 
actually that last code. So I'll just type that in and press enter. Untitled character inserted. Found. Yes, I got it right. Okay. So if you go back into the interface again. Please see. code dialog. Please type the old code. Okay, we've got the idea with the prompt. But if we look at the edit field. 156. We've got exactly the same item in there. Because if you want to repeat the symbol then you would just want to press enter again. But if you don't have anything in that edit field, let me just erase that and press enter. Star, select an old code dialog. List one, list view, set sign, 155, 184, 384. OK, so what we have is a complete list. It's the official list of all the alt codes that there are that I could find. And if we arrow down, let's see. Single pound sign, pound sterling, Irish punt, lira sign, 156. So what you're getting is the description as to what the code represents. But then I've put in the code itself as well. The idea being that you can either press enter on the one that you want in order to insert it, or you can get to learn what these codes are. Again, going back to efficiency. So that if you come to remember what the codes are that you regularly use, then that's a good thing. You can just type them into the edit box in future. And I can immediately think of a use for this because in New Zealand, our Māori language does use macrons. And I am quite fortunate in that when I'm using the spell checker for English New Zealand, it does actually correct my spelling if I just type a number of words and then run the spell checker it will add the macrons but it's not a foolproof method and actually adding the macrons as a screen reader user has been up until this point quite a fiddly process yeah i can well imagine that now as i said what we have here is the official list of the codes but it has been suggested that what people would like to do is to have their own numeric codes that they could type in that would represent signs which are not in this list now that's not in this particular version i want to see how this plays out initially with all the official ones but that may well be a way to go at some stage one question that probably i can anticipate from listeners is how does this differ from the insert symbols dialogue that's already built into jaws that's a really good question so we have i think about 400 different codes in here but if you press insert four to bring up the insert symbols dialog, I think you've only got about 49 in there. So it obviously hasn't been updated for a very long time. And I think, as I say, the advantage here is that for people who get to learn these codes eventually, it's probably a quicker method. If you press this keystroke and you type 156 and then press enter, you can do that in less than two seconds, can't you? Mm. Um, so it's actually much easier to do it via our method. Um, but you, you've got the best of both worlds here, I think, and you've got all these extra codes in there. So over time, can you sort of build up a list of favourites, as it were, frequently used codes? You can't do that at the moment, no. No, this mm. is just um, the maximum capabilities of the feature. Right. Um, I think we did quite well to get it into this version because we only found out about this <laughs> two weeks ago. But I'm sure it will definitely evolve. As I say, there are uh, different ways that we could use this technology, I think. That's the thing, isn't it? That often when you introduce a feature, you get feedback 
It's like the old Molly Wappy story that I used to hear when I was a kid. You have done well, Molly Wappy, but you can do better still. And the cool thing is that I have seen Lisi features evolve over time as people have given feedback. So I'm sure that you'll get a lot of feedback on this because it's highly useful. I really like the feedback. I'm literally getting suggestions for new features every couple of days at the moment or improvements to existing features. And I'm very glad about that. I like to hear about the ways that people are using the technology at the moment or that they would like to be able to use in a particular way. So, yes, please keep that coming and the features will grow over time and get refined. Yeah, because what you're doing is I think what a lot of people like about the Apple ecosystem and that if you can find a committed developer there... Often it's one person who's working very hard and knows their stuff inside out and will add features and will engage in dialogue. And that's the beauty, that's the potential of JAWS scripting, that you can have that same sort of relationship with a developer to essentially make a product more and more useful. So there's a community around this product that I think is very impactful. Yes, thank you. I mean, that's one of the things or one of the reasons why I started learning scripting in the first place. When I was a trainer, I could immediately see where a particular person was struggling. And I thought, if I could just make this easier for that person, if I had some scripting skills, I could make this so much easier, even though JAWS isn't doing what I want it to do at the moment. So that's why I started. And kind of that uh, ethos has continued into the leasing product all these years later. Mm. And there are more goodies. But wait, there's more. It's like the infomercials. I don't know if you get infomercials <laughs> in the UK. I don't think we have those, well, no. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> this came out of the station playlist scripts that we have. But again, somebody wanted it. The ability to display the time on the Braille display second by second. Now, as I said, we've had this for a very long time, probably about 12 years now in the station playlist scripts. Right back at the beginning, we had it. But you can now use it everywhere. Now, I know that people are going to say, well, JAWS already has this. And it, indeed, they do. It's a, a very new feature in JAWS 2022. But what that feature does is it shows the clock in the status cells. And uh, usually it shows it constantly and there are certain uh, permutations that you can go through to configure it how you want. This just displays it on the Braille display. It doesn't matter whether the display has status cells or not. Uh, the one I choose to use, definitely it doesn't work there on the JAWS default uh, clock. And the idea is that you press a keystroke. Now, I can't demonstrate this because I, I'll press it and it's not even going to say anything. It's not even going to tell you that it's started because if it's a Braille-based feature, we really don't want to know whether it's started or not. We can see it there. And the clock will tick up on the Braille display. And as soon as you press a key, it is going to stop. So you do need to bear that in mind. Obviously, if you want to start it again, you can press a, a key on the keyboard. You can also press a cursor routing key and that will stop it as well. Uh, but it is quite useful for people who want to see when they've got to the top of an hour. 
This is cool because this actually builds on a feature that you added for me, which was that you can now specify whether insert F12 speaks the seconds when you push that key. And I like that. I have that on all the time because I want to know the time right down to the second. I mean, if it's 12.59 and 58 seconds, that makes a big difference to me compared with 12.59 and one second. So it's great. And now that's obviously come to Braille as well. Well, that's right. Yes, if you are coming to the end of a presentation and you're seeing the seconds tick up and it's coming close to the top of the hour, you really need to start wrapping up, you know. Yeah. Microsoft Edge. (sighs) This is a thorny issue. These extra messages which are sometimes being spoken, quite often being spoken, when new pages load and so on. So like loading page, load complete, I think it says, something like that, and go back when you go to a previous page. Well, this is alluding to what we were talking about earlier, and this is reducing the amount of oral feedback that you get. So you can now press a keystroke to stop a lot of that from happening. So you you press the keystroke and all the messages are gone. And you you can reinstate them, of course, would never take them away permanently, but you do have that level of control there. Hallelujah. I like Edge actually overall because I'm very much enjoying their immersive reader when you go to a web page and you're reading a news article, for example. And I tell you what, one thing I really got into doing with Microsoft Edge of late is using their text to speech that's built into the immersive reader because it's the best high-quality text-to-speech I have ever heard. You can actually crank that up to a reasonable speed, and it's very pleasant to listen to for long sessions. But, oh boy, those messages drive me nuts. Uh, the, The one question I have is, do you think you'll ever get it granular? For example, I don't want loading page and loading complete, but I have to confess, sometimes when I push the go back key and Edge says, can't go back, no previous page, that is actually useful information for me. Yes, actually, I think we probably can do that. So this is just the start of it, just to see how it works out, as quite a number of these features are, actually. Mm. Um, But yes, I think we will be able to do that in time. What is your preferred browser at the moment? It's Brave. Yeah, yeah. Nice little browser, isn't it? I really like it, yes. Um, I think the the podcast introduced me to it. I think someone was using it. It may have even been yourself. We Uh, we had a listener who talked about it, and then I jumped on, and, and it's gained a bit of traction in the blind community. What keeps you on Brave? It's very usable, um the ability to save files where I want them to be saved, because that sometimes doesn't work in Microsoft Edge. The ability to be able to suppress certain advertisements and things like that, that seems to work fairly well. Uh, less page clutter. So I just like it. So yeah. for me, it's it was either going to be Chrome or Brave, and I've just stayed with Brave. Right. So you're not a particular Microsoft Edge fan at this point. I don't use it at all, no. Interesting. So uh, obviously I I did for this project. Mm. (laughs) Um, But there are things about it, as I say, no matter what I do, I can't make it so that when I press enter on a link to download a file, it, it just downloads it. It doesn't prompt me to download it to a particular location. It used to, but it doesn't seem to do that now. And I I just prefer 
what I've got because I can be very efficient with that. Yeah. So that's interesting. One of the reasons why I like Edge is precisely why you dislike it because I like being able to press enter and get a clear message that it's downloading and it all just goes into the downloads folder. And of course, recently Windows has done something, which means that that folder is sorted so that the most recent file is at the top. And so it's easy to grab the file that you've got and do anything that you want to do with it. So, oh, gosh, it's good to have all these choices because I can remember. Yes, and I'm, I'm sure you can, too, remember a time when questions were, what's the most accessible option here? And now we've got ourselves to a point where that's less and less the question. We've got a variety of choices just like everyone else have. That's right. Can I just talk uh, while we're discussing the internet about another little quick feature here? Have you ever had a situation where you've activated a link on a web page and then you go back to the previous page and the virtual cursor is nowhere near where you expect uh, it to be? Oh, holy soup, yes. Yes, frequently. Yes. Well, it happened to me earlier today. I was looking at some YouTube videos and it happened. Well, we've got a way of taking care of that. So let me just bring up a, a website here. So, so here we go. Healthy Fruit, this is website's called. Three regions, 120 headings and 185 links. Nuts.com, premium bulk nuts, dried fruit, healthy snacks and gifts. Now this is a great example of where this happens every single time, what I was talking about. So let me just activate one of these links. So here's one called gluten-free. I'll press enter. And we should be on the web page now. Nuts.com brave. Nutstar site uses cookies to the nuts.com. Search heading level roasted cashew salted heading level four link. Yes, I think it has got there. Now, if I go back to the previous page. Link build your own. Nuts.com. Now, I can press a keystroke. Visited link gluten-free. And it takes me right back to that link where I was. Now, I'm afraid that wasn't a very elegant demo, and I'm sorry about that. It's just the way that this site works. When you press enter, it doesn't give you a lot of feedback within JAWS that you're going to a new page and so on. I think that is part of the problem. When you go back to the previous page, then you're not where you think you should be. And that's where this new keystroke is going to come into effect, I hope. I presume that would also work in HTML-based emails, will it? Or, or maybe not because of the way JAWS renders it. But I'm thinking of newsletters where you often get a lot of different links to different news stories, that sort of thing, and they're in an email digest, and you go and you activate one of those links. You go back to the email, and you're at the top of the email again. I hadn't even appreciated that, but I'm going to scurry off as soon as we've got this <laughs> interview done, and I'm going to make that work. I'm going to check it to make sure that we can do that. Brilliant. So that will be there. Very good. And um, there are a, a small number of other features, but that pretty much wraps up what's in the uh, in the Lisi version 7. So I have a question for you. This is one that my people would like to get in touch with your people. About. I used to say that as a joke, but now I actually do have people, but I'll, I'll write to you personally. <laughs> anyway, uh, and this is to do with the fact that yeah, I've become a big Lisi user. And one of the things that I use quite a bit, actually, is the Lisi texts feature. And for those who are not familiar with this, this is where you can... You could write a novel if you want, or you could just write a small paragraph or two, 
Or one of the things I also use it for is URLs. So to give you an example of this, I have two calendars that I now offer public access to through Fantastical. And I will do a Mosin at Large podcast about this. So the idea is that in a work context, I provide a link to my fantastical calendar in my job and people can go to that web page and book time with me because it really does reduce all this nonsense about when are you free? No, I'm not free at that time. Can you do this? And on and on it goes. So it's very, very cool. And I have another one for Mosin at Large interviews and I have both of those URLs as leasy texts. So it's just super efficient to be able to recall those long URLs and paste them into the right place. The thing is though, if I set it up on my laptop, it's not on my desktop. And because I'm me, I've worked out how and where you're storing them. And I copy the appropriate files over. But what I want, what I really, really want is some cloud-based way of keeping my Lisi data in sync. I really, really want this. We have, I think, the best group of beta testers in the world who test Lisi. And they are a group of, of a very intelligent people who know the product inside out And we have discussed this for years about how to make this work. And I think it was last year we almost had it. And we had things uh, synchronizing to all kinds of different PCs. We had it all sorted out. The only problem with it and the reason we held back on it was because we also have a feature called Lisi Cuts which enables you to create shortcuts to files and folders. And I do know that literally hundreds of people are using that. And of course, what works on one machine will not work on another. So we would have to filter out the Lisi Cuts aspect of it for the synchronization. The Lisi Checks, obviously, no issues there at all and lots of the other tools but we would have to do some work on leasy cuts because if it's pointing to a file and it's not going to be available then obviously there's nothing you can do about that and the whole thing is just going to be a complete mess if people start storing leasy cuts on one machine they're going to be synchronized and then you store them for a different machine in leasy they're going to be synchronized and it's all going to be terrible so that was the reason we held back on it but it's very much in our minds as to that's what we want to do. Yes, I completely appreciate that dilemma. Yeah, (laughs) I wish you luck with sorting that out. Perhaps some sort of UI that separates the Lisi cuts into a separate local folder while everything else goes into, say, OneDrive or Dropbox or whatever your your cloud storage of choice. Yes, we're, we're there apart from that. Interesting. That, that is, yeah, I, I see the problem. Can I also ask you about Twitter support? Because there have been a few changes in Twitter clients over time. I know that OpenTween, I think, was pretty popular for a while. And then it seems that that got pinged in some way by it's Twitter. It's back now. Is it back? <laughs> it's back. At last, it's back. <laughs> oh, well, that's nice. And I have gotten into using Tweezcake, which I have to say is a fantastic project. I'm just so impressed with the work that those developers have done on Tweezcake because it does so much more than Twitter. And in recent times, I've been using Telegram with it and various other things. So I guess it can be difficult to keep up 
with the evolving world of third-party accessible Twitter clients. I don't have a problem keeping up, but it's a question of, do we need to do anything? Mm. So with Tweescake, although I don't use it a great deal, I probably felt that we didn't need to do anything with that. Yes. Um, I, I haven't been asked to. With OpenTween, I've put the scripts back in there. So people can use that. People are starting to come back to it again. Um, if people think that there really is a need for it to uh, get JAWS to reproduce things in a particular way, as we do, for example, with TW Blue, there are some things that people like JAWS to say to, again, speed up productivity and make things more efficient. Uh, let me hear about it. But I haven't heard anyone say it would be really good if Lisi could do this in conjunction with Tweezcake. And I think the problem I've got with that anyway is that it's so new at the moment that the interface might change and in fact it has changed sometimes since i've seen it between different versions so maybe when things settle down a little bit yes that's a very good point it's not yet at a 1.0 release and it is evolving in quite a cool way so so that's right can you give us any hints about what you're thinking about for future versions of lisi Yes, I can, because I'm already starting work on the next update. We hope to have the next version of Lisi out sometime next week. Uh, at the moment, people keep uh, commenting and saying, can you fix this or can you fix that? So <laughs> there are things that have to be attended to. But I'm very hopeful that uh, next week, that is uh, around about the 8th of March, uh, we will have a new version out. But I've already started working on the next one. So I've already talked about the emoji. I'd very much like to get the extended list of emoji characters in place because some people are finding it quite difficult to be able to work with the existing Windows dialogue. I'm always hearing about this, so I would like to do that. But also, someone has suggested a feature because we have, I think, very good support for Windows notifications. So when you get a notification, whether it be from Teams or Outlook or wherever it comes from, we can review them very quickly. We can quickly turn them off if that's what we want to be able to do. We can do things like uh, abbreviate the notifications as well. So we just tell you which application it's come from and things like that. We can also jump into notifications. But this person has suggested that we could have sounds that could be assigned to different types of notifications. So, for example, if I get an email from you, I might want to be alerted in a particular way. Or if the notification contains a mention, which, of course, is uh, very prevalent as far as uh, applications like Teams is concerned, then we want to hear a particular sound for that. And I'm really attracted by that idea. Music buff that you are, you will be familiar yes. with the Trogs song, I Can't Control Myself. It's got this fantastic, <laughs> oh no, at the beginning of it. And yes, you it could has. assign that to an email from me. Uh, oh no, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> some, peop some people I could think of, perhaps we might do that. But, <laughs> but no, as soon as I heard about this, I thought, I've got to do this. I really have. Um, and I, I thought, no. I really can't do it now. We have to get mm. this version out. So that is something I definitely want to do. I, th I think it has uh, great potential, that does. So there's a lot going on. Now, 
if people want to try Lucy, there is a demo option available, correct? And, and, and people can install and uninstall safely. Yes, they can. They can just download the demo. They can install it. They will get 15 chances. So 15 restarts of JAWS before the demo time expires. And then they'll have to uninstall it or preferably purchase it. How much does Lucy cost? The advanced version, the one that we've been mainly talking about, is £50 in the UK. That is approximately, what, $66, something like that. What about if you are a Lucy 6 user? There is an upgrade fee, I think, right, for Lucy 7? Yes, there is. And the cost of that is £25, which is probably about $37. US Can people order that now, or do they wait until the product is released to order? No, people can order it now. As I say, I am very confident that within a few days of you hearing this, it will be available and plenty of people have pre-ordered it. And of course, as soon as it's released, they will get an email to say, yes, it's definitely available and you can go and get it right now. But uh, either is fine. You can either pre-order it now or wait until it comes out. Well, I really appreciate you updating us uh, on this. I just can't tell you how much of a difference Lisi has made to my efficiency and productivity. It's an absolutely fantastic product. Uh, and by the way, I buy it like everybody else. So, <laughs> so it's just yes, brilliant. It and I really appreciate the work that you've done on it. So it's great to catch up and find out what's coming up in this forthcoming release. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. And I'm really glad that you're using it as well. It uh, it's, it's good to get the feedback. And I haven't forgotten about your requested feature regarding RSS. Yes, I don't know well. if you wanted to talk about that or not, but uh, it, I've been having a chat to Brian about the idea that an RSS cloud-based service or two might be incorporated with Lisi so that people who read news extensively across devices like I do might be able to do that with a lot of efficiency because at the moment, really, if you're a PC user and you want to use your cloud service, the best way to do that is on the web. And there are some downsides of going that way. So uh, I'm sure that's a very big project, though. It's a very big project. We've got the existing RSS reader, which Mm. took me some time to get organized, but uh, obviously it has major disadvantages. I have looked into it and there is an API for a particular service. There is one hurdle that I don't have expertise in uh, resolving at the moment. We may need to buy in some services from somebody who knows a little bit more about it, but that's something that we've done before. So that's fine if that's what we need to do. But yes, I would like to do that. I think along with uh, synchronization with the cloud on different machines for leasy settings, I think that is something that we really need to be looking at. Fantastic. We'll look forward to what happens in the future with Lucy, and we'll have you back on the podcast to talk about it all. Thank you so much. Looking forward to Lucy 7. Thank you very much once again, Jonathan, and um, hope your listeners have uh, a great rest of your day. What's on your mind? Send an email with a recording of your voice or just write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. Or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-60-66736.
Let's go to Hungary and hear from Peter, who says, Hi, Jonathan, can you ask your audience about what is the simplest accessible voice recorder for Android? Of course, if you know the answer, no need to bother the listeners. There are countless voice recorder apps on Google Play, but I'm too old to try them all. I would like to install a free application where I only have to push a button to start recording, and that's it. The file should be saved on my phone and be available in Windows by connecting my Nokia G20 to the desktop computer. No Nokia G20 does not come with a pre-installed voice recorder app. Thanks in advance for all good suggestions. My best wishes from Budapest. Well, Peter, I'm not going to ask my audience any such thing, because you've just done it. (laughs) I just read your email, so I hope somebody can help. It sounds like what you are describing is an app we have on iPhone called Just Press Record, and it does exactly this. It's available for the phone and the Apple Watch, and you just install it, double-tap the button, you start recording, and voila, thanks to the magic of iCloud, your recording appears on your Windows computer without any fuss at all. And if there is such a beast for the iPhone, I'm sure there will be some sort of equivalent for Android. Whether you have to connect your phone physically and grab the recording, or maybe some sort of cloud-based syncing option is available through Dropbox or Google Drive. So, having got the description, if you are an Android authority and you can help Peter with a good recorder, please be in touch with the answers with the recommendations My email address is jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. Attach an audio clip so we don't have to hear too much of my voice if you want, or you can write it down. You can also call the listener line in the United States, the number there, 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736. Rebecca Skipper writes, I am sending in a Braille display for repair, and I miss the days of the Braille and Speak and Braille Light M20. I loved using speech and Braille on a portable device that didn't require the use of the internet. There are times when I'd like to use speech-only devices for portability. I don't want to take a Braille display to a restaurant or to the beach. Use of speech can help users learn a new Braille code or help them understand a new symbol. Yes, we have screen readers like VoiceOver and JAWS, but I do not like using Bluetooth with external keyboards because you can lose data if Bluetooth fails. Sometimes you just want to read notes or enjoy a good book offline, and having the device with speech and Braille would be nice. Getting Braille displays connected to a computer can become complicated. I do not want to use my iPhone to store credit card numbers and all the reports suggesting that Braille on iOS is not reliable. Oh, and then the email just stops. I guess I was expecting more. I definitely understand why you wouldn't want to take a brow display to the beach. You don't want to get sand in your brow display. But I would not be without my brow display at a restaurant because often I can go online and get the menu and read the menu for myself. And as somebody who's hearing impaired, sometimes it can be quite difficult, even if you get a cooperative waiter who was going to read the menu to you, I find it much easier to have my Braille display with me and read the menu myself and make my own choices. So I never go to a restaurant without my Braille display, but to each their own, as they say. 
It sounds like what you're describing is a note taker, like the Braille Note or the Braille Sense. True, they do have the internet, but look, the world's connected to the internet these days. It's going to be very difficult for you to find a device that has Braille and speech that isn't connected to the internet. But if somebody knows of such a thing, let us know. Here's Matthew, who writes, Hello, Jonathan, and all listeners of Mosin at Large. Hope all is well. A few weeks ago, my brother helped our family install one password on our devices. I was super excited when he said he was going to help and immediately sent him your episode of your demoing the product. Things are going smoothly with one password, but I'm having a slight issue on Windows. Using NVDA, I can't seem to access one password the same way you do. For example, using the keyboard command to bring up the dialog when in text fields, finding the app in the system tray, etc. Would love your help, if possible, on this. I have tried the extension on Edge, Chrome, and Brave. I do have the app installed. Thanks, Matthew. I'm not an NVDA user, so I can't comment on that, but I doubt that it's the screen reader that is the issue in this case. It does sound like you've either got the new browser-based 1Password installed, or you've got both installed, the new browser version and 1Password Classic. And I think if you've got both installed, then the browser version takes precedence. So you want to make sure that the 1Password Classic app is installed, and that is the one that has a completely standalone app with its own menu bar. It does not run in your browser and that you have the browser extension for 1Password Classic installed in your Chromium-based browser. It's also available for Firefox as well. I think it's called an add-on in Firefox land, and that you don't have any of the newer 1Password extensions where everything happens in the browser installed. You want to make sure that that thing is gone. I'm sure that 1Password support would be able to help you with this if you make it clear that what you want to end up with is the 1Password classic experience, which in my view is a far better screen reader experience. And as I've said recently, I really hope they don't take it away. I love to hear from you. So if you have any comments you want to contribute to the show, drop me an email written down or with an audio attachment to Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. If you'd rather call in, use the listener line number in the United States, 864-606-6736. Who's in it for? 